What if I asked you who you think holds the record for the most marriages? Not counting Solomon or other like sultans and kings and things who married hundreds of people and politically motivated things. I, I think in my mind immediately of the woman at the well who Jesus pointed out had been married five times, but that certainly can't be the record. Some might think of King Henry VIII who was married six times and something just kept like happening to his wives. You might think of, uh, for example, Elizabeth Taylor, famously married eight times, or Zsa Zsa Gabor, married nine times. But I know of a guy named Glenn Scotty Wolf. yeah, that's really his name, who was married more than all of those people combined, 29 times, starting when he was 22 years old. And they've done studies on this guy to try and figure out like what happened and what can we learn about marriage and, and what can we learn about you know avoiding the pitfalls that this guy fell into. And they found that just by talking to his ex-wives and looking at his life, it seems that as soon as he got married, he immediately was filled with this kind of buyer's remorse, groom's remorse. Like, oh no, what have I done? Now I just am with this one woman. And he would start looking for an excuse to get out of it. And as soon as there was any bump in the road, he'd begin looking at other options. And he was never really invested. Now, how does this work out for someone who is married 29 times? Must have a life just full of people surrounding him that love him, right? Well, he, he actually fathered more than 40 children. And when he died, many of his ex-wives were still living. And yet, not only did he die penniless predictably, that's a lot of alimony and child support, but completely alone. In fact, his lifeless body, with a tattoo of a tied knot on his forearm, lay unclaimed in the county morgue for months after his death. It's rather a sad thing. Now, we're going to talk about marriage being a beautiful and wonderful thing today, and yet you might say, what happened with Scotty? Did he have too much of a good thing? Is that the message here, that we need marriage but in moderation? No, I would suggest that Scotty, ironically, though he was married 29 times, never experienced that good thing at all, not even once. That his idea of what marriage is, and it's probably not too far off from what a lot of people today think that marriage is, didn't even get close to the beautiful gift that God has for us in marriage, something that, that actually precedes the fall, something that is part of creation itself. Now, just to bring you up to speed in this book of Ephesians, we have been studying forever, and uh, like most New Testament epistles, it's divided in half, roughly. The first half being, this is what God has done for you in Christ and what it means for you. The second half being, therefore, here's how you should live in light of that. God has saved you in Christ, therefore this is how you live in light of that. That's the order. Never, ever, 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 ever forget that. And don't bother with any preacher or teacher or author or anybody who tries to give it to you in the opposite order. Do these things, live this way, so that God will love you and save you. That's not how it works. That's how most religions work. That's not how Christianity works. And so you have, here's what God's done for you, here's how we live in response. And that second one is also usually sort of roughly divided in half. First, you have the kind of vertical aspect of how you live in relation to God, your own personal holiness, you know, this kind of thing. And then you have the horizontal, how you live in relation to your neighbor, your fellow human beings. We see this going all the way back to the law, the first tablet of the law, right? What is it? Real, vertical stuff. You know, keep the Sabbath. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't worship false gods and idols. 
The second tablet, then, that love, that relationship with God spills out horizontally. Don't kill people. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Don't steal, etc. And so we are now into this area where your walking in the Spirit is going to spill out into relationships with other people. And we're going to see that here over the next couple of days. In every translation on my shelf here in Ephesians 5, we have a new section. And you often have a new paragraph and a new heading as well. The NIV, for example, says here with verse 21, Christian households. Line break, verse 21, submit to one another. Then it gets into wives and husbands, and then parents and children, etc., etc. But in the Greek, not only is there no paragraph break, there's not even a new sentence. It's become increasingly popular to claim to be a Christian, to be washed in the blood and filled with the Spirit, but hey, without all those antiquated hang-ups about purity and holiness, stuff about marriage and sexuality that's not, you know, no longer in vogue. But in the New Testament, these things are so tightly tied together that the Apostle Paul doesn't even pause to take a breath. One leads into the next. God's love and forgiveness of us then leads to our love for Him, spilling into our love for one another, and all of it then in holiness. You cannot say, I love God, but I don't really like people. It just doesn't work. Just like you can't say, oh, I love people and I'm good with God, but I don't really care about my own holiness. Now, there's going to be a number of relationships laid out here. We'll look at them this week and next. But the first one he goes to is the marriage relationship. The very first one, which is particularly telling, considering that Paul was single and that he says he wishes that the Christians of his day would, like him, remain single so they could devote themselves to ministry. And yet, all the same, he recognizes the centrality of marriage, not only to the Christian church and Christian life, but to humanity as a whole, to creation. It's not just first in order of importance here, as Paul sees it. It's actually very first in chronology. It's the, the first institution, human institution, and it's actually divinely ordained. In, in the creation epic, Eve has existed for all of five seconds when Adam goes, oh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, I think I love you. And then we read at the end of Genesis 2, it is for that reason that a man and a woman will leave their father and mother and cleave to one another and the two become one flesh. Jesus reaffirms this as the biblical view of marriage. And so while in our tradition, marriage is not a sacrament, like it is in some Christian traditions, we do understand marriage to be holy. There's a reason that when God's people sin against him and turn their backs on him throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, he doesn't usually refer to this with a metaphor of a rebellious, disobedient, insubordinate son. Even though that would be accurate, God is our father, and when we rebel, we're rebellious children. No, most of the time, he talks about this in terms of spiritual adultery. The violating of that most foundational and sacred covenant between a husband and wife, us being the bride of our Lord. This means violating a marriage covenant is not just an assault on this covenant between humans. It's not just a sin against your spouse, but it is blasphemy against God himself. And yet today, marriage is seen by many as outmoded, pointless, kind of a relic of the past, rejected now in favor of new and better ideas, in favor of the world's narcissistic approach to relationships. 
that is making people just hollowed out and depressed all over the place. One that puts me and my happiness in the moment at the center of everything as the sacred thing that cannot be violated. This is perhaps the purest and most tragic version of what Jesus is talking about when he says that one could gain the world only to lose his or her soul. Right? I get what I want in the moment, and then I come up empty. When we see marriage being shunted to the side as outdated or irrelevant or even somehow unjust by its very nature, that is a major indicator that a society is drifting further yet away from the order of creation that God established. And it's even been suggested that when a society begins to despise marriage rather than honor it, this is the ultimate indicator, the the most accurate warning that said society will have fallen before too long. Now, I'm no expert in that field, but I can think of a number of societies that have gone down that road and shortly after that development have sort of fallen apart. And I can see how our own culture is already quite a ways down that road. And I believe this is no coincidence, but rather a satanic strategy. After all, Paul is placing this in between a section on living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, and Ephesians 6, where he's going to tell us how to fight against the devil, extinguish his flaming arrows, outflank his wiles and schemes. The late James Boyce also saw this as a a satanic assault on marriage, going back as far as we can see. And in writing on the topic in 1988, he said, if I were to pick the single most destructive feature of secular American life to marriage, I would without any hesitation name television, which laughs at fidelity and makes light of even the most perverted lifestyles. It destroys the home, beginning with the proper and necessary communication among the members of it. In place of normal, relating individuals, it forms people who think only of themselves, of achieving a me-first, pleasure-oriented, materialistic, and immediate gratification lifestyle. 88. And I'm going, Elf? Full house? Cheers, maybe. I'm I'm almost glad Dr. Boyce didn't live to see what would come of this and what would come of the internet in its place that it would offer in place of marriage, which is a real relationship with a real flawed person with bad moods and emotional baggage and annoying habits and a body that is slowly giving in to entropy, now instead subbing in fake relationships over a screen, perhaps lusting after an endless series of airbrushed images of beautiful people who seem to have no baggage, physical or emotional, and no desire other than a deep-seated need to satisfy the viewer. Or perhaps connecting in a more interactive way these days, whether by chance encounter or paid appointment, but always with the facade of a carefully curated self-image that is projected in order to protect the fantasy because that's less dangerous and less work than reality, than two becoming one, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do them part. And I shudder to think what this year of the normalization of moving all human relationships online will do, what diseased fruit that will ultimately bear. But ultimately, you could pull the plug and cut the cable and get off the grid and even isolate yourself. And guess what? You still have the old Adam and the old Eve. 
In fact, imagine saying, I want to save my marriage, so just my wife and I are going to go off somewhere in the mountains. It'll just be the two of us. Somebody's getting murdered at the end of that movie. Am I right? We all have the old sin nature, and from the very beginning, that's been enough to poison our relationships all the way down to our marriages. Adam and Eve didn't have TV. And if they did, what would they have even watched? They had no internet, no lascivious pop music, none of it. And yet, we see the, the sin nature coming and bearing fruit that has ripple effects of curse and death throughout all of creation. Even today, evangelicals often live on our own in our own little bubbles, insulated from much of the world and the world's influence and culture. Still, every few months, we seem to hear of a prominent Christian leader whose marriage is falling apart, and it seems like almost every time it involves either multiple affairs or emotional abuse or something horrible where we'd say, how can this come into the church? So if we're going to have strong marriages, we have to accept that the problem is not all outside. There is certainly that, but the ultimate problem is internal. It's a heart thing. And once we accept that, we can also, as believers, accept that the solution is also internal if we are filled with the Spirit. And that's what's still being discussed here in Ephesians 5. Now this text, it's a, I mean, that's a long intro, and I think I'm just, I'm just stalling because it's a, a lightning rod text, right? Here's something interesting you may not know. This was the text that was read and preached on by our own desire at our wedding when Aaron and I got married 20-some years ago. And here's something Aaron didn't know. I suggested it as a joke. I said, what about that text in Ephesians 5 where it's like, well, wives, submit to your husband. I thought she'd giggle and punch me in the arm. Instead, she read the whole thing in its context and said, yeah, that, that sounds good. And so we told Pastor Teich, this is what we'd like you to read and preach on. Context, context, context. Remember the three rules of biblical interpretation. I think much of the controversy around this boils down to people ignoring both what comes right before and what comes right after it, intentionally putting on blinders. Still, though, it contains this directive to wives to submit to their own husbands. Some translations even say obey. Probably not the best translation, but not completely off the charts. Now, I've done many, many weddings, and I've never had anyone go for that. I give everybody a big stack of different possible vows and language for the declaration of intent to get married. I've never had anyone choose the old one that says, the wife says, honor and obey. Not once. That's antiquated thinking. And I can't think of a quicker path to getting shamed, mocked, demonized, and ultimately, like, canceled than to suggest bringing back that dynamic into the mix or even taking a step back in that direction, which then amplifies the question, what is going on here when Paul talks about wives submitting to their husbands? Poss possibilities. Is it simply cultural? Certainly something is cultural here. That's always the case in the Bible. These New Testament books were not written in a vacuum, and the cultural context of the original recipients of this letter in Ephesus it was a world in which men ruled as the absolute authority in the home in just about every area, with very few exceptions. But we can't simply write off everything we don't like in the Bible as controversially cultural and throw it away and say it was a different time. 
You allow yourself to start doing that, and before long, nothing's a sin. It was all cultural, and nothing's going to challenge you and sanctify you. And, and this is especially true considering that Paul challenges and condemns aspects of pagan culture that go against the teaching of Scripture and commands his readers to reject these things. So why would he do that sometimes and then just skate along with it sometimes? It seems to me what Paul is trying to do here is to be clever. He's using the normal dynamic of the age, of the time and place, of a woman submitting to her husband, but putting a totally different twist on it. Instead of the man ruling and dominating and the woman simply obeying, as in the world's model, he gives a new model in which everyone's role is defined in relationship to Christ. Which should tell us then this is not some form of oppression, but an expression of true freedom, which is what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't think it's very subtle what he's doing here. In just verses 22 through 30, there are half a dozen uh, occurrences of the word as tying the husband-wife relationship to that of Christ and his bride, the church. And even the briefest skimming of this passage will show you that this is God not using marriage as an illustration of Christ and the church, but the other way around. So when we begin with verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for love, put yourself back in that cultural space. To a modern reader, this is the least problematic part of the passage. We'd probably like to just talk about this and then go home. But verse 21 initially would have been rather jarring as it was read to the gathered Christians in Ephesus. Because in the Roman world, things were quite hierarchical, organized in a clear top-down chain. And this shows how revolutionary Christian thought was in its earliest days, as it continues to be today. This also, I think, informs our reading of the rest of the text. It begins with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I gotta just ask you to indulge me for a minute as I get even drier here. Because I have to remind you that we have long sentences when Paul is writing. And that this submit to one another thing, even though the NIV makes it its own sentence with submit to one another, period, it's actually a sub, listen, you got, you can't tune me out. It's a subordinate clause to a longer sentence that begin, began back in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he has this bullet list of things that that looks like. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always, and then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this is all feeding out of being filled with the Spirit. Submitting to one another. Now, because of that, some have suggested, hold on, don't make much of this submitting to one another thing. It's just a segue. This isn't some broad mandate that everyone needs to submit to one another in the church. It's just Paul introducing the topic, and then he'll get into how it works and who submits to who later. In which case, okay, wives submit to your husbands, and there's no sense in which husbands then reciprocally submit to their wives. That's a very common view of this thing and a very common explanation Although I think it kind of ignores the clearest reading of verse 21. What does it mean when you tell a church, submit to one another? Further, though, some would say, how would this even work? Wife submitting to husband, husband submitting to wife, it's chaos. I'm going to say, no, 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 after you, no, after you, no, after you, no, after you, no, we'll do it your way. No, we do. The only time I've ever seen that is when people are being passive-aggressive. 
Or really early in the relationship when you're like, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. The, the word, though, for submit simply means to set yourself under. Think about that for a minute. To set yourself below. This is the, the heart of the Christian life, right? Matthew 23, 11, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Galatians 5.13, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Philippians 2.3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain deceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. If this is how Christ modeled life for us and how we in general should treat one another, how much more should this be visible and present in the most fundamental relationship of marriage, the best glimpse we have of this union, this mystical union between Christ and his bride, the church. Therefore, when we read wives submit to your own husbands, we have to read it in the broader context of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. On this, I'm inflexible. So let's read it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, go also, I'm sorry, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It's brief and to the point. And it cannot be just cultural, by the way, because he brings up a similar concept in 1 Corinthians 11, and there Paul plays the man was created first and woman out of man card, rooting it in the order of creation. And many would say because of that, you have to remove culture entirely from the mix. But later in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul points out the sort of chicken and egg aspect of who comes from who, right? 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. See kind of a little triangle there? That's going to be the consistent thing, I believe, as we look at what it means to have a Christian marriage. And we see this from the very first chapter of the Bible. God creates in a very structured way. He's a God of, of order, not chaos. He, in the first three days of the narrative, we see him forming. And then in the, the second three days, we see him filling what he has formed. And as he forms, he does it in a very ordered way in what N.T. Wright calls binaries. And from the very beginning, the heavens and the earth is what he creates. The heavens and the earth. So on, on, on day one, he creates light and darkness. On day two, there's the water below and the water above the sky. On day three, he creates sea and dry land, forming that so that he can fill them. There's evening and morning, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. And throughout this whole process, at the end of every day, he's like, this is good. This is good. This is very good. This is good. But then he breaks the pattern in Genesis 2.18, it says, ooh, this is not good. Does anyone remember what's not good? It's not good for men to be alone. He looks at this guy and says, I, I've only made half of the picture here. This also is going to be one of these beautiful pairs, just like we've seen in light and dark and the sea and the dry land. And so God creates man and woman 
so that the woman makes up for the weaknesses of the man with her strength and the man the same with the woman because we need to be together. That's why the church should never say, okay, we're going to have a church that's just men or just women. Parachurch ministry, I guess, okay, so we can get together and say, how can we love our wives better? How can we, how can we be Christian women better? You know, that kind of thing. But we want to remember that there is a bigger picture here and that God has not come in and said, okay, this guy just needs an assistant. That's often how that passage is preached. They'll get into that help meet Hebrew noun and everyone becomes a Hebrew expert and they're like, you see, this means basically secretary. No, we're talking about sea and dry land, sky and earth, the heavens. We're talking about beautiful binary creation here. Male and female, he made them in the image of God. And so it doesn't surprise us in Genesis 21 when we see Abraham stressing over this whole situation with his wife and Ishmael, his son, and then you've got uh, the, the handmaiden, Hagar, in the mix, and he's like, what do I do? What does God say to him? Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. There is a variant reading in the Syriac that says, you bonehead, at the end. <laughs> do what she tells you. In Proverbs, we read about how wonderful it is to have a godly and wise wife. Why? So you can brag about how godly and wise she is, or is it because her wisdom will benefit you and yours her because this is two people coming together as one flesh. And this same Paul who wrote Ephesians wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Neither has total authority in the relationship and both yield to the other willingly. There are objections that can be raised to the way I'm interpreting this text, so let's talk about them. First off, some would point out the obvious, but it does specifically tell women, you must submit to your husband, and it never tells husbands, you must in some way submit to your wives. Boom. Game set, mic drop, that's it. Fair enough. But let me point out that this passage specifically tells husbands to love their wives, and never specifically tells wives to love their husbands, are we to believe that they don't need to? That it doesn't matter? That would be absurd. Besides, in verse 2, he already told all of the Christians in Ephesus, walk in love just as Christ also loved. And in verse 21, as we've seen, he told all of us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he's covered that. So why then does he emphasize these specific things for wives and these specific things for husbands respectively? We can't know for sure until we get to heaven and someone Indian burns Paul and demands to know what was going on. But people have suggested some things that make sense to me. Some have suggested these are the deepest needs of men and women respectively. Men with their fragile little male egos need to be respected and feel some sense of reverence. Women feel a need for love. Real love, not fake love, the kind of self-giving love, the kind of love that God enables. Some have suggested that maybe these were particular needs at that time in Asia Minor. And so that's why he writes about these things to Ephesus and Colossae. Still others have gone back to the cultural thing again. said it was a different world then. These were the primary ways in which people in that culture, husbands and wives, showed their commitment to each other. And Paul wanted them to have a good witness as outsiders looked at them. They may all be a little true. What we have is what we have so husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto Christ. Another objection. Well, it says, as Christ is the head of the church, man is the head of the woman. So clearly, there's an organizational chart that Paul is building. Christ, husband, wife. 
in that order. Men are higher up on the chart with more authority to exert. Therefore, respect my authority. But in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul goes one step further. The head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Is the father in a position of higher authority than Christ? Careful! If you answer too quickly, you might accidentally become a heretic. Would hate to have to burn you at the stake. Christ did submit to the will of the Father, willingly, in coming to lay down his life for sinners, but there's no org chart for the Trinity. Every Christian creed is overly careful to make that overly clear. In fact, the life of the Trinity from eternity past has been described as acts of self-giving love within the three persons of the Trinity. No power struggle, no power grab, just harmony and self-giving love. So when St. Paul says the head of Christ is the Father, it doesn't primarily mean I'm the boss of you. And the head of the wife is the husband does not primarily mean something like that. So what does that mean? That he is the head of the wife. Well, that's the main question, I think. And I need to point out that Paul's doing something new here. We hear head of the household and we go, oh yeah, that's a, you know, that's a thing you say. It wasn't the thing you said back then. Paul's doing something new. Outside of the Bible, this Greek word for head, kephale, it's the regular word for like this thing here. This word is never used in discussing male-female relationships up to this point in, in at least not that I know of in extra-biblical Greek literature. So what does it mean exactly? Clearly, it doesn't just mean literally the, the thing containing the brain. Well, think about it even in English. Head can mean several things. It can mean an authority, indeed. The head of HR. The headmaster of a school. Head of the household, as we use it. It can mean one's intellect. Sean, use your head. He hears that sometimes. It can mean a source or point of origin. The head of a river. A trailhead. It can mean prominence or preeminence. The head of a table the head of the class. It can mean the uppermost extremity or peak, the head of a screw, an axe head, or events coming to a head. And pretty much all of those are possible meanings in the biblical Greek as well. Does it mean authority? Well, there are many who would say, yes, it has to. Uh, but going back even to the church fathers, there are many who say it really can't. John Chrysostom, writing in the 300s AD, Archbishop of Constantinople, the golden-tongued preacher, he was adamant that head, at least in 1 Corinthians 11 there, in the context of husbands, wives, and Christ, does not mean leader or ruler. That if we take head with that sense of governing, the passage won't make any sense at all, and it leads to all sorts of false ideas about Jesus and the Trinity. The other key word here besides head is submit. And that's important, because he tells wives, and the Greek word is hupotasomai, which means to submit yourself rather than telling husbands to hupatasso, which means to subjugate someone. The bidag, which is the main lexicon, Greek lexicon most people use, says of this word uh, to submit, of submission in the sense of voluntary yielding in love. Voluntary yielding in love. Again, this describes kind of the Christian life in general, doesn't it? In Mark 10, Jesus said, he called all of those to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, 
And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, this lording over is a result of the fall, not rooted in creation like marriage is. There was harmony before, and in the curse, God says in Genesis 3.16, to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Aaron's nodding a little bit. She knows. The other day, I was getting ready to exercise. I've been exercising lately. Put on my white New Balance sneakers. It was near the end of the day. I didn't want a dirty new socks, so I kept on my dark dress socks. Had some athletic shorts. I was headed down to the basement to do my wee Gold's Gym cardio workout. You could see my very white legs. And I saw her give me the look. You know, the one that says, my desire is for you. Rule over me. If that's what the curse is, I think all women everywhere have found a loophole. No, that's not what's being said here. What, what is this aspect of, of fractured shalom that has entered in because of sin? Well, the only other time that word desire is used in Genesis, and one of only two other times it's used in the whole Old Testament, is just two chapters later. It's right before Cain kills his brother Abel in a jealous rage. And God warns him, he warns him, you're, you're in danger of crossing a line. And in Genesis 4-7, he says, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's, your, your sin wants to rule over you. You've got to rule over it. This is a battle. We're going to see this in Ephesians 6. It is a battle. For most Christians, fighting against sin should be a battle, but it's not. In marriage, it shouldn't be a battle, but it is often because of the curse. Now we have disunity instead of unity, discordance instead of harmony. Two parties often coming together in limited, reserved ways, looking for various benefits from the arrangements, but still trying to come out with the upper hand until the spirit enters the picture. I think there's a great irony that I often see. I, I remember one example. I saw some great debates in a seminary class many years ago, and a friend of mine was so adamant about a reading of this text, that a man is to rule his household and be the lord of his manor, and the little lady should submit just as she does to the Lord, like we see here in Ephesians 5. The man sets the tone. No one else has a voice. And I remember thinking, one, you totally just skipped over loving your wife like Christ loves the church sacrificially. We haven't gotten there yet. But secondly, I happen to know this dude was petrified of his wife. I was in a study group with that guy. His wife ran his life. And she did it all sneaky under the guise of submitting. So she's like, I'll submit to your will. And here's what your will is, by the way. What that is is a ripple effect from the fall. And I know that's anecdotal and it doesn't prove anything. But my point is, if we're living in the Spirit, if we are filled with the Spirit, we can let all these games go and stop trying to cunningly manipulate each other and instead love and respect and serve and care for each other. And that's not what he tells the husband, by the way. You, you woman, I want you to submit. Man, I want you to rule over, subjugate. In fact, he tells him, basically, he tells us the opposite. Verse 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up 
for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish, that she might be holy without blemish. So for her, so that she could have what he wanted her to have, lay down his life for her, sacrificial love. Now having just celebrated Holy Week, we've been reminded of what Christ's love looks like. His love for his church, selfless, long-suffering, willing to be wronged and mocked, quick to forgive, willing at every turn to lay down his life, set aside his own glory, his own rights for the sake of his bride because he is love. And I have heard men read texts like this and say, you know what, I'll start loving her like that when she starts respecting and submitting to me. How does Christ love? Did he wait until we were like, all right, we are perfectly submitting to your will, now come save us? Still be waiting, wouldn't he? No, while we were yet sinners, Christ came to us. Christ makes the first move. I often hit that in sermons during weddings, even though I only go like five minutes. Don't you wish this was a wedding? I'll say, listen, Christ made the first move. He came to us to make reconciliation. He didn't wait because a lot of divorces start that way. Somebody's saying, I'm going to wait for her to make the next move and apologize. No, I'm going to wait for him. And the rift grows. Christ says, my love looks like this. Well, you are sinning against me. I forgive you. I come to you and I make reconciliation even to the point of laying down my life. What does Christ's love and service look like? Getting down on his knees and washing the feet of his disciples. Even though he truly should be above them, truly he is high and lifted up, God himself, he puts himself below them. What was that word again for submit? To set yourself below. That's what Christ-like love looks like. It's what Christ modeled for us, and it is exactly what he is commanding us here, the Spirit, through the pen of Paul, for husbands to love their wives in just this way. So the Bible does assign different roles to men and women because God, get this, designed men and women with different strengths. That would have been the most common sense, bland statement you could make for thousands of years. Now, all of a sudden, it's super controversial. I don't care. We see it in the scriptures. That's the point of that what moment in Genesis 2. It's not good. What? This is only half the picture. Men and women need each other, and the church is incomplete without both men and women serving alongside each other. So what exactly does this look like in marriage? Well, I think a helpful exercise is to read this passage here. Start with the verses directed to the wives and ask, okay, based on this, what percentage of yourself does this verse tell you to give to your husband? Submit yourself, your husband, as to Christ in everything. Sounds like 100%. And then read the passage to husbands and ask, okay, what percentage of yourself does it tell you to give for your wife? Love her like Christ loved the church and laid down his life and was tortured and beaten and died for her. Sounds like 100%. And when you are giving yourselves to each other in this way, there's that triangle again in which we say, but all things belong to Christ. We can serve Christ better as we serve each other. This is a microcosm in marriage, but it is true in all of the church. We can serve Christ better when we are serving one another. And how does he start this passage? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Hey, listen, the husband's body doesn't belong to him, but to the wife. The wife's body doesn't belong to her, but to the husband. And both all to Christ. That is the triangle. So, as has been the case throughout this entire book of Ephesians, the emphasis 
is on unity. In the church, we have unity, and he made a point to say there are different people with different gifts. Some are apostles, some teachers, some serve, some hospitality, and in that is the beauty of the unity, and the same thing is true of marriage. Oh, you thought I missed something, didn't you? If the husband is the head, I told you all the possible things that could mean. What does it mean? If it doesn't mean authority, ruler, which it often doesn't. I mean, in fact, you have the Old Testament. There's a word rosh in Hebrew. And it occurs again and again and again and again and again. And it means like first, but it's used to mean like chief. Chief of a tribe, chief of a clan. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, it's only translated kephale, head, ten times. All the other times they go with archaic, which is the, the word for uh, a ruler, an authority. So it's not the, the main thrust of this word. Well, I would suggest that it looks like this. The ideal scenario in a marriage, according to the scripture, is for the husband and wife to be partners in harmony, serving each other, serving their children, leading their household, loving God, each with their own strengths and skills and abilities, and for the husband to be the head, the spiritual head, not in the sense of tyrannical authority, but in leadership, directing. As uncomfortable as that might be for people steeped in our current cultural climate, I don't know how you read the New Testament without doing violence to the text and get around it. But the husband's leadership, following Christ's example, is servant leadership, sacrificial leadership, rooted in agape love focused on how he can give himself for her. And of course, anytime we get into texts like this and topics like this and come to conclusions like this, people will have exceptions. But wait, what about? And there are always exceptions, it seems. Exceptions generally prove the rule rather than dashing it to pieces. But some would say, well, what about when a husband is telling a wife or a wife even telling a husband to do something wicked or sinful? And you submit to each other. Well, husband says, do this, or you can't go to church, or I insist that you... And the wife submits. Well, no, any submission of one human to another takes a back seat to our submission to God. Just as the disciples obeyed the earthly authorities and respected them and submitted themselves to them until those authorities said, you must disobey God. Then they said, we're out. No one should obey or submit themselves to an earthly authority of any kind, including a spouse who is leading them into sin. The other exception would be many people saying, well, what if the husband's not the head of the household spiritually? What if he's checked out? And that's often the case. One of the saddest realities in the church at large today is that many men who should be the spiritual head of the household are absentee heads. Absentee heads, that's a horrific idea. But they're not there. They think of religion as something feminine or silly or boring and just leave it to the women. It's not new. It's been the case for centuries. That's why I think we really need another movement like Promise Keepers or something to come and sweep through this nation and get men to step up and servant leadership to be the, the norm and, and self-giving love to be the ideal. But in these cases, in, in many cases... Women have been left to shoulder multiple roles, all of the spiritual roles in the family. And by God's grace, many have excelled at this. But that doesn't make it ideal. God created husband and wife together to cooperate together. I mean, a 120-pound woman can lift a car off a toddler if she's got to, to save its life. But that doesn't mean we're blasé about toddlers running around in traffic as long as there's some moms around. It's not fair to women to abandon them to all the leading and all the nurturing and all the everything and spiritual things. 
And I don't think that the exception does anything but prove the rule. I closed my Bible, but I have to read those last three verses. Verses 28 through 30. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Just as Jesus is, in a sense, loving himself when he loves the church, his body, so husbands love themselves when they sacrificially love their wives. It would be ridiculous and bizarre to do anything but... John Calvin wrote this, God has bound us so strongly to each other that no man ought to endeavor to avoid submission and where love reigns, mutual service will be rendered. Whether you're a husband or a wife or neither, the question on a Christ follower's mind is, how can I serve? Not, how can I be served? If we're still rooted in the fall, thinking in the flesh, we'll read a text like this and say, hmm, am I getting what I deserve in this transaction? But if we're living by the Spirit, we will ask, am I giving all that I can? In fact, that's exactly what Reverend Teich said to Aaron and me at our wedding. If you get into the self-seeking stuff, he always says stuff like that when he's preaching. It's a little distracting. If you get into the self-seeking stuff, your marriage will suffer. But if you try to outdo one another in love, your marriage will flourish. And in more than two decades of marriage, I've found that to be true. And I know people who through six or more decades of marriage have also found it to be true. And we know it will be true because it's what we see in the scriptures. Are you saying to yourself, am I getting what I deserve out of this relationship? Or are you saying, am I giving all that I can? Am I emulating Christ in my love? Am I submitting, making myself below others, thinking not more highly than I ought? Because this is the model of humility that we have from Christ. That I can come to the least of these and serve them. And it's not below my station. I'm in danger of going too long if I haven't already done it a long time ago. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And next week we'll continue with what's called the household codes here in Ephesians chapter 5. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this text. We thank you for this model of Christian marriage. How something that was beautiful and perfect in creation and then fractured by the fall can be redeemed and beautiful again through life in Christ, through being filled with the Spirit, through not focusing on ourselves and what we deserve, but on others and how we can serve Lord, we are so thankful for these words in your scriptures, even when they push against our own culture and our own desires and our own, uh, our own feelings. Lord, we want to follow your word, knowing that these are the words of life. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.